There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. 20 years ago today, two men that would become known as the DC Snipers claimed their first victim in Tacoma, Washington on February 16, 2002, in a horrific killing spree that lasted all the way until September 23rd. I spoke with shooting victim Paul LaRuffa, as well as producer Mary Jane Mitchell and creative director John Smithson of the documentary series I Sniper when it premiered last year on Vice TV. My name is Mary Jane Mitchell and I'm the series producer of I Sniper. And I'm uh, John Smithson working with Mary Jane as the creative director of I Sniper. Um, my name is Paul LaRuffa and in 2002 I was a victim of uh, the Snipers. Yes, and, and we really appreciate all three of you you joining us, uh, especially Paul. Uh, you know, I know it probably brings back some really terrible memories, but uh, so I really, really appreciate, you know, all three of you joining me to discuss uh, something that us in the D.C. area, we will never, ever, ever forget. We really set up the story. It starts with um, the first um, killing um in over in Washington state and then sets up the backstory of these two people, Lee Malvo and John Muhammad, what brought them together, their grievances, they start to train for these attacks and we take it from there. And why didn't you pick up MJ? Yeah, so um, episode two will bring us to DC. And so what you will see in tonight's episode is kind of how the story begins to unfold in the Washington DC area. And uh, Paul, I know, um, I know you were, you're featured uh, in episode one a little because you're, uh, you're in, you know, Clinton, Maryland is where, where, you know, you were, you know, sadly, you know, attacked and money stolen and all that. So uh, remind our listeners sort of how, you know, like we, like we were talking before we hopped on here about, you know, how, the chronology, a lot of people forget the chronology or mess up the chronology and forget how, you you know, how you were involved in the very beginning before all this stuff out in Maryland. So uh, remind us of, of why that was important to you to get this chronology right. Well, uh, up until uh, the I Sniper series, there there have been a lot of things that some of which I took part in, but they they were never complete. It never was a complete story of of what happened, how it happened, how it started, how they got here. And, and uh, the reason I took part in, uh, in the I Sniper uh, series is because I was told, rightly so, as it turned out, that it was going to be the complete story. It was going to start from the beginning and tell the whole story of what happened. And, and uh, part of it is how I fit into it. Uh, and so that's why I took part in it. And it, was, and it, and it did tell the, tell the whole story of, uh, of the, the entire event, which lasted 
you know, as I've claimed from forever, that it wasn't just 23 days in Washington, D.C. It was a heck of a lot more than that. And and the documentary does that. It starts in, in uh, you know, a year before, uh, more than a year before what happened in D.C. So uh, that's it. Remind our listeners, and again, um, I know it's some of this is probably hard for you to talk about, but remind us, take us back to that that harrowing, terrifying day. Um, at, you were at your restaurant. You know, walk our listeners through what happened in case you know in case they they forget that part of the story. Remind mm-hmm. them uh, where you were and and what happened. I I uh, uh, owned a restaurant uh, in Clinton, Maryland. And at that time, uh, we had been in, in that restaurant for 16 years. And I left on a Thursday night, September 5th of 2002. I uh, left like I had literally thousands of times. Times At the end of the evening, I left with two individuals. Uh, I always left with somebody. I never wanted to leave alone just for security reasons. I, I never walked out alone. So I walked out with two individuals. I got into my car and they got into their car. Before I could even do anything, uh, the window next to my head on the driver's side of the car just exploded with the first shot. And then there were four more shots. Uh, All five shots hit me. Uh, So it was the experiences. It's just uh, unexplainable that your, your life changes that quickly and in you know you hear that it your life can change in seconds and it's very true uh but i i never lost consciousness i i I got up i actually got out of the car i was bleeding a lot and luckily one of the people that that i left with had a had a cell phone and you're back then you know not everybody had a cell phone and and cell phones were just little flip phones but anyway, it worked. He he dialed nine one one, and uh, and the uh, emergency uh, people got to me in time to take me to to the trauma center, and and uh, I they operated on me for more than seven hours and and saved my life. Wow. So, and obviously this happened, you know, toward the beginning before a, a bunch of the other attacks happened. So obviously this was right. Nobody. This was before anything uh, happened with the, with the snipers. And uh, so the, the ironic part of it is that when I recovered and got out of the hospital and, and got back to the restaurant, I lived through what everybody else lived through. Then the snipers and every day watching the news and, and finding out that somebody was killed. And so, so I lived with that fear and just ironically, because not knowing that, the, the people, you know, the, the whole event that I, I was part of it. So, and, and that wasn't, that wasn't decided or, or figured out until uh, I was shot September 5th. They were caught October 23rd, October 24th. And so it was still a few weeks after that before they actually put everything together and said, oh, now we, you know, we found your computer in their car and it is your computer. And so, so it fit it fit the puzzle. So then, then I knew that I was part of this whole event and uh, you know, literally they took my money that night after they shot me, they took the, the, the money bag that I was carrying and my, and my laptop. And uh, you know, then later bought the car and 
with that money and, and use the laptop to plan killings. So it was a, a uh, pretty crazy event. Yeah, for sure. And uh, they were they were caught um, up here in uh, Myersville, Maryland, which is right. I mean, I live up in Frederick. So, I mean, it's right outside of where, where this was. Um, and uh, so, so Paul, then what, yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, you know, did you feel relief when they were finally caught? But now, you know, I guess based on what you're telling me now is, yeah, you probably felt relief in terms of like everyone else in the area felt relief, but you didn't even know how you factored in until a couple of weeks later. So um, what describe that mix of emotions and, you know, of, of going from, you know, the, the typical relief that all of us were feeling to suddenly realizing you're a part of it, piecing it together with the laptop. And then, you know, is there some sort of like, I guess survivor's guilt would be the word, you know, is there, is there some sort of weird, you know, you should a range of emotions i'm sure yeah I, I the the thing to remember is that when i was shot obviously i didn't know who who shot me and that mentally is just uh very taxing uh, i had i had flashbacks as soon as i got to the hospital and the next morning when i when i woke up uh from that day forward the the week i spent in the hospital and then every day after that i had flashbacks literally every day i mean it wasn't there was a day didn't go by that i didn't relive it and you relive it when i say flashbacks it's you you actually feel it you hear it i heard that first shot i felt that glass the windshield of uh, the window breaking all over me and I relive that over and over again. So it wasn't, it, it was hell. I mean, I say for just mentally for, for the next, from September 5th till uh, several weeks after they were caught. I, I was relieved when they were caught and it took a, a, a little while, but then the, the flashbacks went away. You know, I, I felt safer uh, and just something happens in your mind. And, and for me, it was just, great that it, it went away it was amazing that when i say it went away i you know shortly after they were were, were caught my my mind was i don't want to say at ease but i didn't have the flashbacks anymore and that was that was just the greatest experience ever not to relive that and then since then uh I, you know, I've never had a flashback. I've been fine since then. And, I, you know, I, I uh, and I'm just grateful for that, that it didn't ruin, it, it didn't ruin my life. It, it ruined, uh, you know, definitely one day of my life and some other days too, it weren't happy days. But, but uh, you know, from shortly after, from sometime in late October or November, I, I was pretty much, uh, I don't want to say over it. You, you never get over it, but I, I didn't have the flashbacks and I, I didn't have to relive it. And I didn't, uh, as time went on, I didn't feel the same anger about it. And, uh, and you know, that's where I am today. Right. Yeah. yeah. And today at the point where you can, you know, join us today and, and talk about it like this. I mean, it's, it's yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. And, um, you know, thanks so much again for, for joining us and sharing everything. Um, We'll get back to, to Paul in a second. Uh, let's bring the filmmakers in here. Um, uh, you know, when did when did you get this the idea to turn this into a TV series? Because, um, you know, I guess next year is the, what, 20th anniversary? Wow, hard to believe it's been that that far. But um, 
but yeah, I mean, tell me, take me into when, when the idea to, to finally, you know, take, you know, do a retrospective like this came. Yeah. Um, the, one of the key things, Jason, is um, no one's ever tried to do something as ambitious as we've done here. Uh, four years in the making, you know, eight episodes, eight hours uh, on Vice, episode two tonight. I think it was about 150 people that Mary Jane and the team in, uh, in the States were talked to in, the, uh, in putting this together. And really there was three prongs to this. Obviously most important, uh, like we've been hearing from Paul, the, the families of the 10 known victims and those that survived, such as Paul, their voices. And I think we end up talking to 11 or 12 uh, uh, survivors or, or, or victims. Then a um, huge number of the law enforcement, there's such a gigantic effort, the biggest manhunt, I think they said in American history, and talking to all those key people in all the police departments and organizations like the ATF and the um, FBI. And then above all, and what really made a difference in what we were doing is getting these phone calls that Mary Jane will tell you about with Lee Malvo from his uh, jail in uh, at the Supermax, the Red Onion in Virginia. And it was getting to um, that voice of describing and understanding, never seeking to exonerate him or to forgive him, but to understand from someone who was 16 or 17, um, how this happened, what the motivation was. And that was chilling, uh, but it was also a true insight that doesn't really happen on these sort of crimes where often the people are, uh, shooters tend to be killed on location or are in custody or don't have the lucidity that um, Malvo has. So that was the opportunity we had to put that together. And it was Mary Jane that was doing all these calls with Malvo uh, that you, uh, you should uh, pick up on, MJ. Thanks, John. Um, you know, I just wanna quickly go back to your question, Jason, which is that the idea originally came from the fact that, um, you know, I was there working on a different project in 2002 in DC like everyone relying utterly on WTOP. And, you know, I feel a, a huge debt of gratitude to the radio station for that. Um, and I think like everyone was very, very just surprised to discover who, who was behind, who was behind the shootings and especially that there was a, you know, a, a teenager involved. And so that was really the seed that kind of planted the idea. And then, you know, teaming up with John, um, uh, you know, years later, talking about projects that we were interested in, realizing that the time was right, both kind of in terms of, you know, being able to do these long involved documentaries, you know, that was a new thing. Um, and that this was really a story that we were very committed to and felt um, that we could, we could really examine kind of what had happened here. Um, so, you know, it, the beginning of all of that is obviously understanding whether Malvo is mature enough and um, interested in kind of having that conversation and, you know, who was, and we kind of pieced everything together um, around that. And having that full, that ability to do, tell the full 360 of this, and then all that amazing 
uh, archive, both the video and we used extensively the sound archive, including from your radio station, just to sort of bring you back to that period and, you know, to the level of fear and tension. And it really, we were able to try and build that story, which is, you know, having eight hours gives you a real amount of time to get into that detail and build a sense of understanding uh, to what happened from every side, as I say, the full uh, 360. So that, that was why this was an unusually ambitious uh, project. Yeah, well, um, yeah, thanks for the kind words about WTOP. I mean, yeah, we were, um, it was, uh, yeah, folks, folks were, you know, driving in their cars, listening to us while going to get, you know, terrified for their life to go get gas, but we were on in their cars trying to update them, everything we knew. And in, Talk about you interviewed law enforcement. Talk about how, you know, tricky it was for them. I mean, I know at first everyone thought it was some big box truck and then comes to find out it was like what, like a blue caprice or something. So, I mean, talk what did what did you learn from law enforcement in terms of, you know, sort of the mystery they were trying to piece together? You know, I think for everyone in the film, law enforcement, journalists, um, you know, lay people, everyone lived in the community, right? So you're law enforcement, but you're also a citizen. And so they had their own concerns about their own families at the same time as trying to investigate the case. So it was really a very unique situation for everyone and it created a lot of tension and concern all around. Um, you know, they it was incumbent on them to follow every lead and, and the white box truck took on a world of its own. Um, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of white box trucks. So at any shooting, you're bound to see one. Um, I think they tried really hard not to become blinkered, but it just becomes the conversation and the driving topic. Um, and, you know, they can't discount it until they know they can discount it. So I think there was a lot of frustration. I think there was a lot of personal anxiety. Um, I think they understood that each murder prevented provided rather an opportunity for information, but also, you know, another murder. So it, it was a very, very, very difficult investigation for everybody involved. And Mary Jane, uh, you know, you mentioned that you, you were one of the one coordinating uh, the calls to the prison with Malvo. Um, obviously, um, uh, uh, John Allen Muhammad was was already executed, so Lee Boy Malvo is still in prison, serving his sentence. Um, what did you learn by interviewing him? I know, I know, you said the the series doesn't try to exonerate him, or you know, either way, you're just sort of trying to present what happened. But what did, could you gather anything from him? Was there any remorse? Was there any you know sense of I was misled by this older guy? Was there any I'm going to take accountability because I'm the one actually killing people too? I mean. Uh, God, it's got to be so crazy talking to him. But, you know, what, what, where do you think his mindset is today? You know, I think um, all of the above. I mean, he he poses the question, which we have in the film, what inside me made that possible? And that's really the journey that he was on for himself to try and understand and the journey that he was willing to go on with me in terms of his interviews. Um, and, you know, he wrestled kind of one 15 minute phone call at a time, we're trying to find an answer to that. I found that, you know, my job was really to push him beyond the story of what he did and really try and ask him to examine why he did it. 
um, you know, I was looking for more of an emotional response than an intellectual response. And then the film allows us to kind of wrap this very difficult conversation into a documentary so that we can all kind of consume it and converse on it. And I hope to find some understanding in it because I think there is value in understanding why a 17 year old would commit mass murder, even though it's difficult to, to talk to him. Wow, yeah, I mean, I, I, our listeners will uh, need to tune into the show to see, see those responses and those phone calls. Paul, what was it like, what's it like watching the show and seeing um, literally, the, literally the man that shot you? Um, What's it like seeing him giving his responses on on the TV show? I mean, what what feelings do you? It's got to be complicated feelings for you too. Well, you know, I think it's very well done uh, because it it stirs emotion. I, I I'm not afraid of things that that make me emotional, whether it be happy emotion or, or sad. I I've watched the whole series probably. You know, I, I got I was given a chance to watch it early on last year and and this year. I've probably watched the whole thing, uh, you know, five or six times, uh, and uh, I feel the emotion every time, uh, which is good. I mean, which is which says something good about it that it does stir emotions. Uh, I mean, it, it's a little different in me because I was part of it, so I I really feel. Uh, maybe I feel it differently than other people, but I think uh, everybody feels the emotion and the sadness of it all. Uh, and that's why I, I, I think it's well, you know, it, it is well done, that it can stir people. It can make people think. And I, I love videos or things that are produced. I think they're, it's, it's an art. And I, I think it's, it's good that it moves people one way or the other and makes people think. Uh, whether they agree with everything in in the series or not, it still makes people think. And I've talked to people about it, and 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 I think that's true. They said, "Wow, it it, it was incredible, incredibly sad and emotional." But wow, it, it gave me a different view. It, it 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 had things that I didn't know before, and and that's uh, I think to to Mary Jane and and anybody involved in it, that's that's a good thing to hear. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, Paul, t- take me how your thought process over the last almost 10 years has evolved from, I mean, I know you were early on, you know, hoping you got the death penalty lately. I think you've said that, you know, you support his Supreme court case for parole, you know, take me into your, where you sort of stand on, on that today. Is there, any level of forgiveness and on the flip side of that do you understand other victims that say they never could forgive them you know i mean you got speak to sort of both sides of that yeah i i understand uh <clears throat> you know the way i feel today is vastly different from the way i felt in 2002 uh, was i angry then of, of course i was angry uh at him and uh, you know, did I hate him? Did I hate what he did? What did I hate what Mohammed did? Yeah, I did. But I learned along the way, and I think it's valuable that that you know I've always been asked, do you forgive him? And and uh, 
And forgiving isn't excusing it. People confuse. It's easy to confuse forgiveness with excusing uh, the actions. Uh, forgiveness, the definition I use, it, it's the, the letting go of the anger towards a person or a group who has done something to you. And I've done that. I've done that because if I didn't do that, I would be angry today like I was in 2002. And that would mean the last 19 years of my life would be somewhat miserable because I'd wake up every day with that same anger. So I don't, I don't have that same anger. Now, along the, along the way, and in recent years, I, uh, you know, you're right. In the beginning, did I, I wasn't super, I, I didn't have a real problem with the, with the death penalty. I had a little bit of problem with it uh, in terms of Malvo. I didn't have a problem with it in terms of a 42-year-old man, John Mohammed. Uh, I, and I always said, well, if they were both sentenced to life in prison without parole, that, that's, that's fine. That would be fine with me. Well, then in the, in the last few years, I've, I've come to learn more about, you know, life without parole as it pertains to children, to, to juveniles. And, uh, you know, and I've come to the conclusion that it's just not, it's not justice. It's, uh. Uh, so therefore, I, I became uh, active in in in, uh, in Maryland, particularly in testifying for a, a law, which is, for a bill, which is now a law that says after 20 years, a juvenile who's committed a crime, a murder, and uh, after that, you can't sentence them to life without parole. And after 20 years of incarceration, they get a chance to be reviewed. And that's what it, it's a chance. It's not a guarantee. So when people mischaracterize, uh, people do mischaracterize what what I'm what I stand for. I am not standing. I am not saying today that that uh, Lee Boyd Malvo sh should be released from jail. And I'm not saying he should be released when he comes up for the review in in 2022. I guess. Uh, all I'm saying is that these laws are valuable because it, it just provides a chance for people that committed a crime when they were juveniles to be reviewed and possibly paroled, but not there's no guarantee involved. Uh, and then I've already been asked and I've already been contacted about Malvo specifically. And I, I don't I don't know the answer. I'm not the one that will make that decision. Because uh, I don't know enough about how he's changed. I think he probably has. I think just from the little knowledge I have that that yeah, he's a different person at at thirty some odd years old than he than he was at at uh, seventeen. And I think that's true. Does that mean that justice is letting him out? I don't know. Somebody else will have to make that decision. Uh, but but I am for that law that provides a chance for people. And the last thing I'll say is the, the evidence of, of that law and laws like it in 25 other states, the reason, one of the reasons why they work is that somewhere around 700 and some odd people have been actually released from uh, prison after serving 15 or 20 years under the, this program, under this, these laws. And the recidivism rate is close to zero. So obviously these people 
don't go out and start committing crimes the way they did when they were 17 years old. So anyway, that's that's my logic and that's my reason for being behind these laws that uh, uh, eliminate life without parole for juveniles because I think justice is actually better served if they just get a review after 15 or 20 years and to see if they have absolutely reformed into different people and, and, and society would benefit by them being let out. And of course, the other side of it is maybe society wouldn't benefit and then they won't, they won't be let out. So that's how I, I feel. That's how I like to explain it. And it's not in my mind, nothing about it is contradictory. Well, thank you for sharing your, your thoughts on that. Um, I know we're on up against the clock, so I definitely, before we run, um, really, you know, I feel like a lot of times these stories are written, documentaries are made, and uh, the real victims in this whole thing are, are often forgotten. So I want to make sure in this interview we, we mentioned, could, could someone um, mention the names of the victims, those who lost their lives, and, you know, I assume you mentioned you interviewed some of their their surviving family members um, in the in the documentary. So could someone just speak to the victims uh, that you know weren't lucky like Paul that that did actually lose their lives here? Sure. I mean, firstly, I just want to say, and, and Paul touched on this at the beginning, that it was really important to us when we began this process that we include the stories of everyone we knew about who was related to this case, so that it wasn't just a DC story but that there were considerable number of other shooting victims um, prior to Malvo and Mohammed arriving in DC. Um, so, you know, the, the first victim, Lee's first shooting was of Kenya Cook. Um, she was 21 and she lived in Tacoma, Washington. Then there was Jerry Ray Taylor, who was just on a golf course in Tucson, Arizona. Next was Paul, Paula Rufa in Clinton, Maryland, just closing up his restaurant. Um, Rupinda Oberoi in Silver Spring, Maryland. Mohammed Rashid in Brandywine, Maryland. Million Waldemarian in Atlanta, Georgia. Claudine Parker and Kelly Adams in Montgomery, Alabama. Hong Ballinger in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And then James Martin in, in Wheaton, Maryland. Sonny Buchanan in White Flint, Maryland, Prem Kumar Wallacar in Aspen Hill, Maryland, Sarah Ramos in Silver Spring, Maryland, Laurie Rivera in Kensington, Maryland, Pascal Charlot in Washington, D.C., Caroline Sewall in Fredericksburg, Virginia, Iron Brown in Bowie, Maryland, Dean Myers in Manassas, Virginia, Kenneth Bridges in Massaponics, Virginia, Linda Franklin in Falls Church, Virginia, Jeffrey Hopper in Ashland, Virginia, and Conrad Johnson in Aspen Hill, Maryland. And they are the killings that, and shootings that we know about. Thanks for reading all those names. Uh, I really wanted to, it was important to get that in there. And uh, I guess just any words in closing about how, you know, this whole series, you know, not only is it hopefully, you know, riveting for viewers to watch from a TV perspective, but hopefully for folks like Paul that, that lived through this ordeal or, or you know, family members who, who lost their loved ones to this. Uh, just talk about what, what you hope folks to take away from watching this. I, all I would say is it's, um, it's thought provoking, whatever, as Paul was saying, whatever your position 
and it talks beyond the headlines and really seeks to understand this truly horrible crime. So um, it's, uh, I would say this, I know, but it's worth persisting with because it, as it goes through in each episode, it really opens up and is, is just totally gives you an, an insight and an understanding into what was a big American event. Yeah, I would say that there are many viewpoints in this film, not just the Malvo's, and that it really is a, exactly. a, a valid and rare lens on a, on a very tragic story. Great. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. John, Mary Jane, Paul, uh, especially Paul, um, after everything you went through. Thank you much for joining us. Again, everyone, it's called I Sniper. You can find it online on Vice's website, and uh, I'm sure you can pull it up on demand on, on whatever your, your cable provider is. So uh, thanks so much, everyone, for joining us. This was a, a very enlightening conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.